Chasing Cosby contains descriptions of violence, sexual content, and language that is not suitable for every audience. Please be advised. It's October 16th, 2014, and we're at the Trocadero Theater in Philadelphia. Hannibal Burris is a comedian from Chicago. You might know him from Comedy Central's Broad City, and he's doing stand-up tonight. On stage, Burris starts mocking Bill Cosby. Pull your pants up, black people. I was on TV in the 80s. <laughs> Dan McQuaid, who works for Philadelphia Magazine, is here at the show. I was probably fiddling with my phone, and I heard him say Bill Cosby, and I immediately hit record and started filming. I can talk down to you because I had a successful sitcom. <laughs> yeah, it was great women, Bill Cosby, so kind of down a couple notches. <laughs> Yep. Hannibal Burris just called Cosby a rapist on stage. It was completely random that I had been in the audience that night. I got a ticket last minute and didn't expect to be reporting on any news while I was there. But here's a young black comedian going to town on Bill Cosby here. And I was like, oh, well, that's a story. I've done this bit on stage, and people don't believe people think I'm making it up. That shit is upsetting. If you didn't know about it, trust me. If you leave here, Google Bill Cosby right <laughs> This shit has more results than Hannibal Burks. <laughs> Bill Cosby famously had lectured young black comedians in the past. And here's a different young black comedian years later saying, you know, fuck you, Bill Cosby. Like, yeah, you don't curse, but you rape women. So I don't need to take your advice on anything. After Boris finishes his Cosby bit, Dan stops recording. He knows this is a story. Dan remembers when Andrea Constant first brought her allegations against Cosby in 2005. So I did think, oh, here's, here's a way to get this Cosby story back into the public eye again. So the next day, Dan goes into the office, writes a piece about the show, and uploads his video online. It's Friday afternoon. The headline that I wrote was, Hannibal Barris on Bill Cosby, colon, quotes, you're a rapist. Gets to the point. Um, <laughs> I... I I've written thousands of headlines in my time. That one, I guess, was pretty good. I remember, like, texting with some friends. I was like, oh, I think this video I took last night has a chance to do well. But I had probably stopped thinking about it by Monday morning. But by Monday afternoon, it seems like the whole world is talking about Hannibal Burris calling Bill Cosby a rapist at the Trocadero. Dan's video has gone viral after BuzzFeed and Gawker post stories that link to his piece. That statement by a virtually unknown comic in a small club was posted online, igniting a firestorm over charges that had been dormant since the 2005 lawsuit. Social media are reviving sexual assault allegations against comedian Bill Cosby. There was a point when he maybe could have gotten it to fade away. And then the Bill Cosby social team did like a meme me on Twitter, posted photos of Bill Cosby and asked for people to put memes on them. And people were putting things like, I like two things, jello pudding and rape. (laughs) 
From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Nikki Wisensee Egan, and this is Chasing Cosby. Episode 3, Fooled Them Again. As I mentioned at the end of our last episode, I had packed up my Cosby files in 2006 after Andrea Constan settled her lawsuit with him. Things had been relatively quiet since then. His name is Mark Whitaker, and he's written a new book called Cosby, His Life and Times. Good morning, Mark Whitaker. Good morning. In 2014, former Newsweek editor Mark Whitaker publishes a biography about Cosby. There's no mention of sexual assault in the book. It climbs the bestseller list. Meanwhile, Cosby has a new television show in the works. Cosby is returning to NBC for a new sitcom, we're told. He'll play the patriarch of a multi-generational family. New show brings the 76-year-old comedian back to the same network that helped him launch his groundbreaking Cosby show series. That ran for eight years. After Hannibal Burris calls Cosby out at the Trocadero, Cosby does cancel or postpone a few appearances, one on The Late Show with David Letterman and one on The Queen Latifah Show. But Cosby still seems untouchable. There's no sense his image is being tarnished by the allegations of sexual assault. In November 2014, he and his wife Camille make time to talk about 62 pieces of art they're loaning to the Smithsonian. Here's an interview with the Associated Press. I have to ask about your name coming up in the news recently regarding this comedian. No, no, we don't answer that. Okay. I I just wanted to ask if you wanted to respond at all about whether any of that was true. There's no response. Okay. Can I ask you if, with the the persona that people know about Bill Cosby, should they believe anything differently about what? There is no comment about that. And, and I'll tell you why. Okay. I think you were told. Now, can I get something from you? What's that? That none of that will be shown. And I would appreciate it if it was scuttled. I hear you. I, I will tell that to my editors, and, and, and I think that they will understand. Well, I, I think if you want to consider yourself to be serious, mm-hmm. that it will not appear anywhere. Then, New York Daily News reporter Chelsea Rose Marcias gets an assignment to die for. I was driving around Manhattan, and I get a call from my editor. And she says, you know, hi, Chelsea. You know, we got um, a phone call a few minutes ago from a man who says he was someone that worked at NBC. And he said that he knows things about Cosby from having worked with him directly. Her editor tells her to go interview him. So Chelsea drives to an assisted living facility in Lakewood, New Jersey. She meets with a 90-year-old man there named Frank Scotty. He's thin, with gray hair and large silver frame glasses. In his room, the first thing Chelsea notices is all the photographs of Frank and Bill Cosby. There was one that was of him and Bill that was obviously a portrait of the two that had been professionally done. And they're, you know, smiling, standing close to each other. And right below that, there was another picture of Frank cooking a big Italian meal for Bill Cosby and a lot of people. There was another uh, picture of Cosby, a black and white, and Bill Cosby had signed the photograph to Frank Scotty, my friend. Chelsea starts firing off her questions. Why do you want to talk about Bill Cosby now? What do you know? And why do you want to talk about it now? He goes, I can't die with knowing what I know and not having told the story. My name is Frank Scotty. 
I met Mr. Cosby when I had a coffee shop in Greenwich Village. And this was in about 1965. He didn't have any money, so I gave him cappuccini, which is the coffee that he loves. Cosby would often come in, say hello to Frank, how are you? And Frank would remember him from the neighborhood. Cosby then went out to California to do I Spy. Now, what's the assignment? You want his head on a platter? I think I can arrange that. Fast forward about 15 years in the 80s when the Cosby show was airing, Cosby and Frank meet again when Frank is now a facility manager at NBC. Cosby remembered him and said, you know, I really want you to be my right-hand man. Frank had so much to do with uh, set design on the Cosby show, who came in, who came out. He told me the president of the United States could call and Cosby would have said, oh, talk to Frank. He often stood in front of a dressing room where Cosby would ask to see a model. What I want to talk about, talk about the, the money orders that I have that I had to send to women all over the United States and Europe. Why would I be sending some woman $2,000? Suspicious. It's almost as if he knew when the time was right, he was going to maybe share this story. And I think as the accusations mounted, there was this sort of pressure upon him that he felt inside of him that he had to come forward. I felt dirty. I just felt, you know, he's not the person I thought he was. The article runs in the New York Daily News, and NBC News interviews Scotty, too. Both outlets run photos of the money orders. The money orders have Scotty's name on them, but Scotty says the money came from Cosby and was money Cosby had directed he pay women. Chelsea asked why Scotty kept the money orders all these years. He goes, well, I didn't know what I was going to do with them, but I felt like they might, you know, become useful at some point. Scotty dies five months after the story runs, perhaps a little more at peace since unburdening himself. In response to Scotty's accusations, Cosby's attorneys tell NBC News it appears that his story is pure speculation so that he can get his 15 minutes of fame. Some of the women mentioned in the Daily News story later denied the payments were improper. Nonetheless, Scotty's story made an impact. For the first time, a Cosby insider has broken ranks, a man who says he now believes he helped Bill Cosby victimize women. Bill Cosby accusers are coming forward. The women held a press conference in Los Angeles. Thank you for coming today. I'm Gloria Allred. The next major character in our story is Gloria Allred. She's a women's rights attorney with short brown, perfectly coiffed hair. In December 2014, Allred holds a press conference to announce she has three new clients. The women say they have been drugged and assaulted by Bill Cosby. Cosby, remember, has denied accusations like these and others made later in this episode and said he had no comment to offer on this podcast. Here's All Red in an interview I conducted with her last year. In 2014, a number of accusers contacted me and they wanted to know what, if anything, they could do. In the case of many, many, it was too late for them to actually file a civil lawsuit against Mr. Cosby because of something called the statute of limitations. 
which is the arbitrary time period set by law during which a claim or a lawsuit must be filed. So for many of them, they wanted to have a voice because that was the only option they really could exercise. Allred begins to hold regular press conferences. At each one, more Cosby accusers come forward. He approached me from behind, and reached over my shoulder and grabbed my right wrist. I was stunned. He was touching my belly and on my genital area. He grabbed me by my back and kept taking his big penis sticking down my throat hard. But because I was barely conscious and I felt drugged, I was unable to do anything to get out of it. The next thing I remember, I was walking up, waking up in my car, my head hanging down from the seat alone. I hope my coming forward inspires any other person harmed by Mr. Cosby. Here's Gloria Allred again. I feel very positive about those who chose to exercise their option to speak out. And I feel very honored that they wanted me to support them in it. I was there to support them so that they could have their voice. Other Cosby accusers like P.J. Mastin take their stories straight to the media. In 1972, P.J. is a 22-year-old Playboy bunny working at the Great Gorge Playboy Club and Resort in New Jersey. Bunnies were not playmates, two separate things. A playmate is a centerfold that's in the magazine. A Playboy bunny is essentially a waitress. They were servers. One night, P.J. meets Bill Cosby. He's the headliner for a show at the club. We weren't allowed to serve during the show, so afterwards he would come in the, in the kitchens where the bunnies were and rub our feet and tell us jokes, and everybody loved him. It was a lot of fun to be around him. In 1977, PJ gets a promotion, Bunny Mother. In her new role, PJ's a manager and mentor to the bunnies. She's often at Hugh Hefner's lavish mansion near Beverly Hills, and so is Cosby. I eventually transferred to Los Angeles, and he was at Hefner's mansion all the time. And I saw him all the time. He knew who I was. PJ remembers running into Cosby again a couple years later at the Playboy Club in Chicago. One afternoon, I was seating the room for lunch, and the bunnies were serving. And Bill Cosby was scheduled to have an interview by Maggie Daly, who was a, a columnist at the time for the Trib, I believe. After his interview with Maggie, he asked me if I had had lunch, and I said, no, I was seating the room. He says, come with me. So he walked two blocks away to Banquet on a Bun, which was just a little dive place. He jumped behind the counter, was making French fries and hot dogs, and everybody in there was laughing, and we all had a lot of fun. The night after this visit to Banquet on a Bun, Cosby invites PJ to dinner. At this point, she's known him seven years, and she thinks dinner with a comedian might be kind of fun. He says, well, meet me at the hotel. It was the Whitehall Hotel, and at the time, he had a call from downstairs to find out what room he was in through the operator. He spoke on the phone. He says, why don't you come on up and have a drink before we go out to dinner? Cosby greeted me at the door, and he asked me what I wanted to drink. I wasn't much of a drinker back then, so I said, I'll have a Grand Marnier. Now, 
that's an after-dinner drink, so I mean, that was kind of weird, but that's what I wanted. So he called downstairs and asked for a bellman to come up. Bellman came up, he handed him $100, told him to go around the corner and get a bottle of Grand Marnier and bring it up, which the bellman did. And in my mind, at the time, I didn't think about it, but later on, I thought, why didn't he call room service? Cosby said to me, do you want the drink on the rocks or straight up? I says, I'll take it on the rocks. I took two sips, and that's the last thing I remember until 4 o'clock in the morning. I woke up in bed, and he was next to me completely naked. And I tried to get out of the bed without waking him. And I got up, and there was blood running down my legs because he sodomized me. And so I collected my clothing, and I got in the elevator, and I, I got in a taxi, and I went home and got in the shower and just screamed. I knew what he had done to me. I was bleeding, and I screamed for about an hour in the shower, and I knew I had to go to work. So I got dressed, and I went to work. And he called me about 11 o'clock in the morning and he said, why did you leave? And my mind was just blown. He said, listen, I'm sending a gift for you. And a couple hours later, a florist delivered a four foot ficus tree. And there was a card in it that said, stay healthy mentally and take charge of yourself. He just raped me, and this is what he's sending me. I was beyond, beyond myself. I was hysterical. PJ doesn't know what to do after the assault. She starts with telling her supervisor. And she said to me, well, you know, that's Hefner's best friend, right? I said, I know, but he raped me. He drugged me. I don't know what he gave me. She said, if you want your job, I suggest you shut your mouth. A day or two later, she confides in a high school friend who confirms PJ was extremely distraught. When a person is raped, your body is raped, but your soul and your spirit is raped. You can't ever get that back. It's gone. I've, I've not had an intimate relationship since. Not once. I don't trust anybody. We sent an email to Cosby's spokesman asking for a response to the details in PJ's story, but he declined to comment. PJ still has the note Cosby sent her. Mary Ellen O'Toole says icon intimidation keeps victims of sexual assault from coming forward when they're attacked by someone like Bill Cosby. O'Toole is a retired FBI profiler. An icon is someone who has more power or influence than their victims. It's someone the victim possibly reveres, respects, and wants to have a reciprocal liking in return. O'Toole says icons can be priests, rabbis, Boy Scout leaders, or celebrities. Basically, anyone with more power and influence than his or her victim. Their carefully honed public images not only help them attract their prey, but also serve as their cover. The icon can build upon that trust with the victim by showering attention on him or her, and at times even their families. But then when something happens, like perhaps they've been drugged or sexually assaulted, they blame themselves. They might even ask themselves, what did I do wrong? 
And if a perpetrator likes to drug his victims before he sexually assaults them, that could be part of his M.O., something that you do over and over so you don't get caught. An icon has the power and stature to sway the public, law enforcement, and, of course, his or her victims. PJ told her story to CNN, The New York Daily News, and New York Magazine, and she was just one of many women starting to open up. Here's Andrea Constand. It was very eye-opening. Beyond my wildest imagination, I never thought that in 2014 that I would be witnessing more women coming forward. I had really come a long way for so many years moving on with my life, and it was the opening again of a wound that I had tried so desperately to patch up. I'm Lily Bernard, and I survived being drugged and sexually assaulted by Bill Cosby. Lily Bernard is a striking Cuban-American actor and artist. She played Mrs. Minifield, a zany, enormously pregnant patient of Dr. Huxtable's on The Cosby Show. Let's rewind to 1990, when she was 26 years old. Lily first got to know Bill Cosby at an open casting call for the show. Part of the grooming was that he interrogated me with so many questions. He told me that he needed to know everything about me in order to better be able to help me. Bill Cosby spoke to my mom on the phone, and he told both my dad in person and my mom on the phone how much he loved me as if I were his daughter, because Bill Cosby often said, I love you as if you were my daughter. I care about you as if you were my child. I have recordings of him saying to me, you know, you're one of my kids, Bernard. And he told my parents that he was taking care of me as if I were one of his kids. They begin rehearsing scenes together. Cosby promises Lily a big role on his show and says he'll do everything in his power to help her acting career. One day, Cosby invites Lily to the Taj Mahal Hotel in Atlantic City to discuss her future. Now we're up in this suite, this palatial suite, and Bill Cosby brings me this drink, and it's brown. And he's very enthusiastic and and bubbly and joking and and told me that I had to drink it. It tasted to me horrible uh, because I didn't drink alcohol. I said, Mr. C, I don't drink alcohol. He kind of nervously went back to the kitchen area and came back with another drink. And it was still brown, and this time it was sweet. Like, maybe he put Coca-Cola in it or something, but it tasted horrible. I didn't have any reason not to trust him. And within just a few minutes, all of a sudden, the room started spinning. And I felt really dizzy, and I felt like I had to vomit. And I remember covering my mouth and thinking that I'm going to explode projectile vomit. Now, I did not think that he had drugged me. I thought, did I get food poisoning from the lobster that I ate? And then I passed out, and then the next thing I remember, I was on the floor. I remember opening up my eyes and seeing Bill Cosby on top of me. When Lily wakes up, it's the next morning. Cosby rushes her to a car, and the driver takes her back to New York City. She's supposed to perform in a play later that day. Now, by this time, I had already blocked out the trauma of Atlantic City. I mean, literally blocked it out. I had no memory of it whatsoever. So Lily moves on with her life. Cosby calls her again later that year. Come to Las Vegas, he says, and meet the casting director for A Different World. A Different World, remember, was the Cosby Show spinoff. So now I had to go to Las Vegas to meet the producers of A Different World. And, of course, they never showed up. He said that they had to rescind on meeting me. They were not there, but we were going to celebrate anyway. So Bill Cosby, he disappeared for a while. I don't know if he had to perform or whatever. But when he came back, he had two bottles. 
He said to me, look, I brought your sparkling apple cider because you don't drink alcohol. And he said, we're going to drink to your success. We clinked glasses, and he says, drink up. And this time again, literally pushing up the drink to my mouth. And then all of a sudden, the room starts spinning. And what did I think? I still did not think that he drugged me. I said to him, Mr. C, I think you gave me the wrong glass. Lily starts to lose her balance. She falls on a table, hitting it hard. Now, the next memory I have, I'm in a bed. And I remember screaming and yelling, no, no, don't. So he covers my mouth and he starts telling me to shut up, Bernard, shut up. And then he takes the pillow and he pushes it against my face. I couldn't lift up my arms because they were like noodles. And he was suffocating me. And at that point, I thought, I'm going to die of suffocation. Drugged and helpless to defend herself, Lily endures the assault until she passes out. When I woke up in the morning, I was in his T-shirt and my clothes were on a dresser neatly folded. I remember looking in the mirror, and again, what happened? This is not the last interaction Lily Bernard has with Bill Cosby. She blocks out the memories of the assault. It doesn't even occur to her that she's been drugged. A year after the meeting in Vegas, Lily says Cosby calls to say he's gotten her that guest-starring role on The Cosby Show. She agrees to go to the comedian's Manhattan Brownstone so they can call an agent he knows to discuss the terms of her new part. When she arrives, Cosby gives Lily a drink. She takes it. He took my hands and he forced them on his thing and I was crying and sobbing like a baby. And in that moment of assault, all the memories came back. The Atlantic City memory came back. The Las Vegas memory came back. And I'm like, oh my God. I didn't have food poisoning in Atlantic City. He didn't accidentally give me alcohol in Las Vegas. This is premeditated. He drugged me. And the drink that he had given me just then, I'm sure he was planning on raping me again, but I had taken just a little sip, and I was crying and yelling at him, and then he kicked me out of the house. He's like, get out of here, Bernard, get out of here. Shortly after this incident, Lily tells the story to her boyfriend, who confronts Cosby over the phone. She also shares the details of her story with a close friend, her agent, her therapist, and her pastor. But Lily moves forward with her role as Mrs. Minifield on The Cosby Show. That week was a very difficult week for me. Bill Cosby was like hostile and and angry and yelling because we had had that confrontation. So he was yelling at me and really abusive. So it was this emotional abuse that everybody saw on the set all week long. I felt like I was going to faint and vomit the whole time that I was on the set. I had to be on stage with this man who drugged me and raped me. It was in front of a live audience, which was really difficult. I was trembling. I thought, how am I going to get my lines out? And um, at the end, when the audience was applauding, he looked at me and he said, uh, fool them again. We fooled them again. When I later put it together that Lily Bernard was the actor who played Mrs. Minifield on The Cosby Show, I was horrified. Before, I could separate what Cosby had done from The Cosby Show, and I still enjoyed watching it from time to time. It did, as I say, get me through some rough times in my teens. But after hearing Lily's side of the story, I could no longer watch the show. I knew I'd always be looking in the background at the extras or the guest stars wondering, was she a victim? Was she? After she wraps up her role, Lily tells Cosby she's going to report him to the police. He said he's going to ruin my career. I did tell people whom I trusted. I told my agent. My agent tried so hard to convince me to go to the police. In the end, Lily couldn't bring herself to go to the cops. She was too afraid of what Cosby might do. 
But that threat was still on her mind 23 years later when Lily was struggling with whether or not to go public with her story. We should say here that we sent an email to Cosby's spokesman asking for a response to the details in Lily's story, but he declined to comment. I was afraid, you know, of the retaliation that I would endure from Bill Cosby and, and the disbelief. And then there's a whole level of being a black woman, right? More than a third of us Bill Cosby survivors are black women. We have an extra burden in speaking out against him because the black public attacks us for having brought the, the black man down. And so one of my celebrity friends came to my house and said, you're going to be okay. A lot of the industry knows. Lily Bernard finally does decide to take her story to the police and to the public in May 2015. Lily, final question to you, 60 seconds. How would you respond to the defenders of Bill Cosby? If and when I'm called to testify under oath, I will present all the details along with evidence. Finally, the allegations begin to catch up with Bill Cosby. Mark Whitaker, the author of a new Bill Cosby biography, is apologizing for not pursuing allegations that the comedian had drugged and sexually assaulted numerous women. NBC ditches its plan to bring Bill Cosby back to prime time. This after Netflix postponed a Cosby special indefinitely. Two of Cosby's appearances on talk shows have been canceled, and TV Land stopped airing reruns of The Cosby Show. Coming up in the next episode of Chasing Cosby. A new firestorm surrounds Bill Cosby, but this time it's because of his own words and not the accusations of others. When that deposition came out, I was shocked. He said what he did. He admitted what he did. He specifically mentioned my name. I couldn't believe the way he made light of it. It just felt like dirty. It looks bad, Bill. I gotta say, all of the information that's out there kind of points to guilt. Chasing Cosby is reported and hosted by me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. It's a Los Angeles Times podcast and a production of LA Times Studios and Herzog and & Company. Our producer is Alexandra Zaslow. Our audio engineers are Angus Spottiswood, Pete Ciarto, Brett Whitlow, Mike Heflin, and Eric Montgomery. Production help from Paige Heimson, Aaron Sands, and Robert Glenn Smith. The original music you heard in this podcast was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Our sound design is by Snap Sound. Thanks to everyone who granted us access to their archives. You can find the list at latimes.com slash Chasing Cosby. Chasing Cosby is executive produced by Abby Fentress Swanson for the Los Angeles Times, Mark Herzog and Andy Beckerman for Herzog and & Company, and me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. If you're the victim of sexual assault or know someone who is, you can get help by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673.